If you don't have a Bible this morning, there's one right through that door in the sanctuary back of the pew. And I would encourage you to open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 12 and chapter 13. Now in these two chapters, there are a lot of names that are hard to pronounce and even harder still to understand. And many times we might just skip over these chapters, but as we look in the big picture of things, there is some information here that I think would be very helpful to us. We're talking this morning about escaping spiritual poverty. We hear a lot today about the war on poverty, but this is a little bit different kind of poverty. So once again, let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we ask You now to help us to direct our attention to Your Word. We thank You that You've given us everything we need to equip us for life and godliness. So we pray that as we hear it, it might change our lives. And we pray in Christ's name and for His sake. Amen. For our introduction, we'll just take a brief review. You remember last time we had concluded the major war for the Promised Land. We saw Joshua coming into the land with the central campaign to separate the north from south. Then he went down in the south and defeated those kings. You remember the valley of Ajalon? God was throwing down great hailstones to help the Israelites win the battle. Then he went up north and defeated those kings. And now the military conquest of Canaan is finished in terms of what we're going to do in a united effort under centralized leadership. So if you've been following along, you know that under the leadership of Moses, there was some land captured on their way in on the east side of the Jordan River. And then when Moses died, Joshua took over and led them on into the promised land and defeated all the kings there with their armies who would be um, an impediment to Israel coming into the land. We saw some scriptures last time as we recall these past victories. Joshua 11:23, Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord has spoken through Moses. And then that last phrase, thus the land had rest from war. Now that's key because we want to understand more about that. And then a little later in the book of Joshua, the Lord gave Israel all the land which He had sworn to give to their fathers. And the Lord gave them rest on every side. And of everything the Lord promised, all came to pass. So God has fulfilled His promise to the Israelites, but we mentioned last time that there are things that we have to do in order to realize the fullness of God's blessings and God's promises. And we're going to see that today. There is still much work left to be done in the promised land. And there's a reason God did it that way. Chapter 13, verse 1. Now Joshua was old and advanced in years. And you know what the Lord said to him? You're old and advanced in years. And yet there is very much of the land left to be possessed. Why did God do it this way? When they had everything rolling there with Joshua, why didn't they just go in and clean out every single living Canaanite in the entire land? Well, God always does things for a purpose. And sometimes we don't understand His purposes, but as we do see what He's doing, then it makes sense to us, perhaps later on. Now, we know today, as we look back, 
the reason why God did it this way. And one good reason was the same reason that our welfare system in the United States doesn't work very well. If people don't have to do any work, do you think they're going to be motivated to do anything productive? If people can just reap the benefits of whatever there may be without investing any time or effort or labor, do you think they're going to work? How about everybody that you know? How many do you know, if they didn't have to go to work tomorrow, would go to work anyway? Not very many. It's just human nature. And God certainly knew that. He knew that they would lose their incentive unless they got to participate in this conquering of the promised land. So if we don't have that incentive to work, then work becomes an oppressive burden. And it's something that we don't want to do instead of the blessing that God intended it to be. Why do you think Western civilization made such great advancements in compared to other parts of the world? Well, a good part of that, a big reason, was what we call the Protestant work ethic, sometimes called the Calvinist work ethic. It comes out of the Reformation because Martin Luther and John Calvin said that your work is a calling from the Lord, and your work should be used to glorify God. In fact, John Calvin said, and I quote here, that no task will be so sordid and base, provided you obey your calling in it, that it will not shine and be reckoned very precious in God's sight. The butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker, they can all serve God with what they do in their respective and respectable vocations. That kind of thinking set us free from many of the problems that we have today in the United States. Some of these are described in an article written by Barry Fagan. This guy is a 2014 Pulitzer Prize winner, winner, and the article is entitled, America's Real Problem is with Spiritual Poverty. Now, he's not thinking like you and I would think, but listen to what he has to say. Poverty, in the sense of not having the basic material needs for life, just isn't much of an issue anymore in America. 80% of households living below the poverty line have cell phones, microwaves, refrigerators, televisions, air conditioners, and stoves. More than half the households living below the poverty line have a computer, washer, and dryer. And, of course, that's very different than it was 100 years ago. Some of those things haven't been invented. He goes on to say, what America has is not a poverty problem, but other social problems that we call poverty. This is done for political reasons because getting support for anti-poverty programs is much easier than getting support for fighting the other social problems, and I would add the spiritual problems that he didn't say anything about. These problems are much harder to solve. Passing laws and redistributing wealth can't do much about them. And then he goes on to say, the American underclass has tremendous social problems. Children born out of wedlock, single-parent families, a sense of hopelessness, a lack of opportunity, a lack of economic mobility, a sense of entitlement, incentive structures and legal barriers that encourage dependence and keep a wealthier future out of reach. Unemployed, rootless young men are more likely to be incarcerated and die violently. 
These and others are vital, pressing issues that ought to demand the attention and action of all people of goodwill. Well, it's easy to see that if there is no need to work, few people are going to be working. Proverbs 29:19 says a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. And older people, people in the working class, if they are left to themselves with nothing productive to do, they're going to bring some shame too, and we see that even today. So God knew this from the beginning, and he gave the individual tribes the responsibility of going in after the war is over and taking care of all the mop-up operation. You see, Joshua didn't kill every single Canaanite in the land. There's still Canaanites living there. And now the individual tribes, Judah and Benjamin and Dan and Issachar, they're going to have to go in and possess their possession in the territory that they've been given. So they work and God works. Now that was the work given to the nation in that day. That's God's channel of redemption back then. God's channel of redemption today is the church. What is the work that is given to us? Well, it's evangelism, it's discipleship, it's sanctification, it's all the things that those concepts entail. And we see in the scripture, in there's the verse on bringing shame to the mother, we see in Philippians 2, So then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And we're told in the book of James that faith without works is dead. This is our calling as Christians. And if you want to be happy in this life, you've got to be busy about the calling that God has given you. I don't mean that you have to be in full-time Christian work. I'm talking about you need to have a part in evangelism and discipleship and the process of sanctification and worship and everything else that we do at the church. As I think back over my life and remember the people who have been the most joyful and I would say the happiest people, they were people who were involved in the work of the church not necessarily as full-time Christians or missionaries or pastors or teachers, but people who were laymen, people who were in all the professions, but they were involved in the work, in the calling that God has given us. Now, there's another practical reason why God didn't drive out the Canaanites all at once. Can you guess what it would be? Deuteronomy 7, verse 22, And the Lord your God will drive out those nations before you little by little, you will be unable to destroy them all at once, lest the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. But the Lord your God will deliver them over to you and will inflict defeat upon them until they are destroyed. God didn't want His people coming in the promised land to lose the vineyards, the orchards, the gardens, and everything else that wild animals and weeds and neglect would destroy. When they come into a place... Everything's going to be there for them. The fruit's going to be out on the fruit trees. The vegetables are going to be in the garden. Sometimes they would destroy the cities. But God prepared this land for them. And He prepares many things for us, but we've got to go in and claim it and drive out the enemy 
And that's what we want to look at today. Look back now in chapter 12. In verses 1 through 6, we see Moses' victories before they get in the promised land proper. And then beginning in verse 7, we see Joshua's victories across the river in the promised land. And the last part of that chapter, you see that Joshua defeated 31 kings and their armies that were as numerous as the sand of the seashore, Scripture says, not to mention all their horses and chariots. 31 kings with 31 combined armies. Now, admittedly, those were the kings of smaller city-states in the land. It wouldn't be like the king of America or something like that. But this was quite a feat that God enabled Joshua to perform to give Israel control of the land. Christ gives us control of life when we become converted, when we become Christians. But then it's up to us to go to work to clear out those pockets of the enemy resistance that would keep us from experiencing the fullest of blessing that God has for us. And that's what we want to look at today. Now in chapter 12, we are reminded that occasionally, from time to time in your life, it's a good idea to slow up from the race, maybe get the family together together, and recount all the victories that God has given you. Surely His grace has accomplished much in our lives. But a lot of times we're thinking about the current battle that we're in and all the challenges, and we don't take time to go back and look at everything that God did for us. Well, this is what's happening here in this chapter. They're going back uh, celebrating those victories, praising the Lord for His enduring faithfulness, and that's the reason Joshua has this written down if he didn't write it down himself. Instead of that, what do we think about most of the time? We think about defeats and failures because that's exactly what the enemy wants us to think about. Because the enemy knows that if he can lower the morale of the home team, then they're not going to be able to accomplish the work and the calling that God has given them to do. And discouragement is debilitating. And he knows that. So he wants us to dwell on the battlefield here in our minds, or might say our hearts and parts of Scripture. He wants us to dwell on the negative on the discouraging, on the defeats, on the failures, on all of those things that he keeps reminding us about. And sometimes it's like we wake up in the morning and we just start thinking those things and we focus on whatever it is or whatever the current problem is. Well, we want to look at some other possibilities. God has told us in Scripture that he has a purpose for our lives. And that means He has a purpose for everything that's happening in our lives. And even when we get ourselves in trouble, He has a purpose in that. And He wants to work His purposes just like He did when Christ was crucified. Now, the Bible says that God brings good out of evil. And there was the greatest evil that had ever been committed. In a sense, the only innocent man that ever was was crucified. That was a terrible thing on Friday. But on Sunday, it turns into a really good thing 
because God specializes in bringing good out of evil that brings glory to Him. And that's what we need to do. We need to specialize in bringing the good out of the bad. Now, we need some help from the Lord to do that, but one of the ways we begin doing it is to think about the good. Think about all the good that God has promised us in the Bible. Think about all the good that God has already done for us in our lives. And think about all the good that we can do to others. Then that takes our mind off of our troubles in a sense. Look at this, Paul tells us in Romans. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in what? Our sufferings, I rejoice in sufferings. I don't know about that, except there's a purpose in it. Listen to this. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us, because God has poured out His love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom He has given us. Now hang on to that good news, because we want to come back in just a minute and take a look at the process by which that works. Quickly here, reviewing the unconquered territories. In Joshua 13, 1 through 6, we see that very much of the land remains to be possessed. This is the land that remains. All the regions of the Philistines and all those of the Geshurites and a whole bunch of strange things there. But look at this. The five lords of the Philistines, the Gazite, the Ashdodite, the Ashkelonite, the Gittite, the Akronite. Amazing. The five lords of the Philistines, remember who that is. All the inhabitants of the hill country from Lebanon as far as Mishraphoth, Maim, it goes on and on. Think of all the future problems that could have been eliminated if they had obeyed God and knocked out the five lords of the Philistines. Little David the shepherd boy would not have had the Philistine giant to fight that brought him immediate acclaim and made him a prominent hero in the land. God could have done it another way, but I'll tell you one thing. If they had knocked out the five lords of the Philistines, they would have saved 34,000 Israeli lives in two days when they were defeated by battle in the days of Samuel. Well, think of the future problems that could be eliminated in our lives if we drove out all those wrong and negative thoughts that the enemy wants to put in there, if we did that now, think about how good life could be 10 years from now or in all the years between now and the rest of our lives. We've got the same challenge that they had. Uh, the battle is won. The enemy is conquered. But we've got to go in there and knock out those strongholds and those pretensions and ideas and speculations and all those things that the enemy likes to keep in our minds. Recording the tribal boundaries in the rest of the uh, chapter here, in beginning in Joshua 13, 7, uh, we see the division of the land east of the Jordan. East of the Jordan, you remember, was given to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Now coming in to the promised land, we went around to the east and came across the river to the west there. But when they got to that land, those guys said, hey, we've got a lot of cattle, and this is really nice pasture land. How about just let us settle here across the Jordan River? Well, Moses didn't like that too well. But he checked with the Lord on it, and he said, okay, 
if you guys, you military guys that are going to be with the army, if you'll just settle your cattle and your families here, then you come on in with us and help us fight the battles, and then you can go back home and live across the Jordan River. Do you think that was a good idea? Well, it seemed to work out okay, but it turned out it was not a wise plan because where do we worship God in those days? We worship God in the tabernacle. And the tabernacle went right across the river to Gilgal, where it stayed for seven years, and then it went to Shiloh. And then, when the tabernacle was no longer in use, we had the temple of God, where we worship God, in Jerusalem. But Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh were across the river. They didn't have any bridges in those days. They didn't have the Army Corps of Engineers to come in and put those pontoons in where they could get across the river. So they did pretty well over there, it seemed. They did become rich, wealthy, prosperous, but they were gradually absorbed by the culture. And then way later on, when the the Assyrians came in to capture the land, they were the first ones to be taken off into captivity, never to return. Now, what could we learn out of that? They had 44,760 valiant men, and they won a lot of battles. But in time, they drifted away because they were not meeting with the assembly of God's people. How does spiritual poverty creep in on us? Alan Redpath makes a categorical statement. He says, The deepest blessings of the spiritual life cannot be held in the strength of our own purpose. They can be ours only in fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom all our inheritance is vested, and from whom we receive every blessing by faith. He goes on to say, You cannot know Jesus our Lord unless you know Him in His Word. Then he asks the question, How many pages of your Bible are unpossessed, unexplored territory? And we ask the question, Where do you find systematic expository teaching and preaching of the Word of God? That's what we need. Where do you find it? Well, hopefully you find it at church. That's what we try to do at this church. What in the world is expository preaching? Well, let's see if we can uh, define that. It means preaching through the entire Bible. Sooner or later, you bump into everything that you need for life and godliness. It's there. And if you're going straight through... You can't dodge any of it. When you get there, you have to deal with it. It helps people get to know the Word of God. It gives them interpretations, correlations. It gives them applications. And they can go home and take the Bible and study and see, did they tell us the truth there this morning? Let's take a look here and see what's there. It gives us an authoritative standard by which to judge everything. The sermon, the preacher, the critics of the preacher, the culture, the commentary, even your own heart. But you've got to know the Scriptures. Your critique has got to be based on Scripture. And when you're going through the Scriptures, studying everything, well, that's how we do it. So some folks don't make it to church. They're out someplace beyond the river in some territory where it's just they can't get to church on Sunday. It may not be geographical, it may be some other reason. Other people are church dating. They miss out. 
they date this church for a while, they date that church for a while, and they don't get that systematic teaching and understanding that you would get if you were in the groove studying through something somewhere. Some people come to the building, but they don't sit in the service. Maybe they're visiting or talking or whatever, and they might miss out. And then there are others who have a home church. What about that? Home church is certainly a good thing, just like they did it in the New Testament, if you have several things. First, you'd have to have expository teaching and preaching of the Word. Then you have to have dispensing of the sacraments. Then you need to have church discipline. Then you need to have a plurality of leadership. And if you have that, I'd say home church is a good thing. If I had a home big enough to house all you people, I'd be happy for you to come. But... What I'm saying is we've got to get the church together and we've got to be there working on these things that God has given us to do. So if you're not regular in church attendance somewhere working through these studies, that makes you very vulnerable to the enemy because the battlefield is right here and one thing church does is to equip us, renew our minds, so that we're ready for the battle. That's a long war, a protracted war, and we have many battles to fight. And church encourages us with others who are fighting the same battle. If the enemy can cut you off from the place of worship, just like he did those two and a half tribes, you may be absorbed by the culture just like they were. Now, it happens incrementally, so sometimes we don't even know that it's going on. Few folks in church have most of their battles behind them. But for most of us, most of the battles we're going to fight are in the future. And we need to be ready. We need to know the enemy. We need to know ourselves. And we need to know how to fight. And that's what we do here at church, is learn how to fight and how to win the battle. In the meantime, while you're thinking about those battles in the future, you can live each day victoriously in Christ. But if you don't drive out those wrong thoughts and beliefs and ideas, here's what can happen. If you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, as way back in Moses' day, then it shall come about that those whom you let remain of them will become as pricks in your eyes and thorns in your sides. And they will trouble you in the land in which you live And it will come about that as I plan to do to them, so I will do to you. That sounds pretty ominous. So we want to be sure we understand how the enemy likes to work. They had the Canaanites. We have ideas and beliefs and ideologies and thoughts and all those things. Now here's how the enemy likes to work. We'll do this quickly in a few minutes we have left here. He knows that the Word of God is a vital means to renew our minds for the battle. So he wants us to continually think about thoughts that are opposed to Scripture. Now, there can be a million thoughts. He's got some streamlined for you. But here are the categories that they fall into. Thoughts from the enemy. Worry and envy. He's doing better than I am. Fear, lust, guilt, inferiority, anger and bitterness discouragement, depression, self-pity, focus on self, including pride, negative thoughts such as unfavorable comparison to others. Now think for a minute. 
where does the enemy like to attack you in your thought life? Do you see any areas there where you have suffered defeat? Any areas where you need to be strengthened? Well, the Scripture gives us very specific ideas concerning our thoughts. 2 Corinthians 10.5 Take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That's important because it's our thoughts that generate everything else. The issues of life come out of your heart. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Our actions, our words, everything comes from our thoughts. In Philippians 4, 8, and 9, we're told what we need to think about. Things that are true. Now you say, well, wait a minute, it's true that I'm sad and lonely. Yes, that may be true, but there is a greater truth that you've got to bring to bear on that, and that's the truth of Scripture. And Jesus says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Do not let your heart be troubled and do not be afraid. So we got to go for that higher truth and make application of it. Things that are honest and honorable, things that are just, pure, lovely, of good report, virtuous, and praiseworthy thoughts that fit into those categories. Now, having these two opposing sets of thoughts, we're told exactly what to do with them. I'm talking about the specific thoughts. It might take sitting down doing a little work, but here's what we do. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. Your old self, that's talking about your thoughts. Oh, there may be some habits, some actions that come out of that, but you've got to change your thoughts before you can change anything else. That's what we put off. What we put on is the new self, the new thoughts, the new concepts, the new habit patterns, the new uh, way of life that we live. And then right in the middle there, it says, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. I'd like to remind you that whatever the old self is, it resides in our thoughts, in our hearts. That's where it came from. That, that came from. That's where it lives today. If you've been thinking right thoughts 10 years ago in some areas, life might be better now. If you start thinking right thoughts 10 years from now, life's going to be a lot better, maybe 10 days from now or 10 minutes from now. But here's the reason why people would say this doesn't work for them. Before we can renew our minds, we have to be wholly committed, fully committed to God's purposes. That means the surrender of your will. Did everybody hear that part? The surrender of your will. Before this thing is going to function the way God wants it to function because He knows what's best and He's waiting for me to say, Lord, I know You know what's best and I want Your best in my life. That's how you get transformed in the renewing of your mind. I beseech you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Your body is yourself, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And don't be conformed to the world the way the world thinks, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Same thing we saw in Ephesians 4. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind so that you can prove what is the good acceptable, perfect will of God. Someone has said, the will of God is what I would choose if I knew what it was, if I knew how it was going to turn out. 
because it's going to always turn out for the best, even if it includes suffering and adversity and all of those things. Well, how do I do this on a daily basis? Let's make ourselves a little chart. We can get some help from John Regeer and his biblical concepts in counseling. And you don't have to be a counselor to do this. You can do it for yourself. First, identify the specific wrong thought. Now, I've got mine going up and down, but you could have yours going across the page. This is just so it'll come up on the PowerPoint here. Well, what's my thought that's creating my loneliness? Well, nobody loves me, and I have no friends, and I am so lonely. Now, don't laugh, because that's the kind of thoughts that Satan brings to us. But guess what? Jesus loves you, this I know. The Bible tells me so. And you have no friends, that could be true, but you probably have some parents who love you. You probably have some other people who care what happens to you. And you may be so lonely, but Satan is going somewhere with this, and God wants to go somewhere too. If you want to know what, where God is going with loneliness, then uh, I would suggest to you an excellent resource, The Path of Loneliness, Elizabeth Elliot. She was married to a new husband, and all of a sudden he's martyred by the Aka Indians in South America, and she has to go with her little new baby back down there to lead those Indians to Christ. There was loneliness. You've heard her talk about that. Well, here's where Satan is going. Worry. Envy, other people who have all the friends, discouragement, self-pity, focus on myself, all of those things, that's where Satan wants you to camp out because you won't be much good in the battle. Here's God's goal in loneliness. Christ experienced some loneliness. His friends all deserted Him right at the end when He needed them to experience a fellowship of suffering with Christ, Paul says in Philippians 3 to be able to comfort lonely people, to gain victory over loneliness, and to be grateful because God is going to tell us something about gratitude. Now, over in your far column, you want to have this. Victory over wrong thought patterns. And you've got some scripture, and you've got the prayer. We won't read all these in deference to time. You see, this we could have about a seminar for the weekend on just what we're talking about here but maybe we can catch the vision. Romans 8.29, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. Oh, Heavenly Father, help me to respond like Christ in my loneliness. Now, I just put some very brief prayers. You may be praying a lot of things. Pray the Scripture. Philippians 3, That I may know Him, the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. Lord, I'm not asking for suffering, but if it has to come, help me to follow the example of Christ. This is a longer one, 2 Corinthians 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted of God. For just as our sufferings in Christ are ours in abundance, So also our comfort is abundance through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective and patient enduring of the same suffering which we also suffer. Well, if you haven't suffered anything, you don't know how to comfort anybody. I mean, you comfort with the Word of God, but when people are in some real trouble, who do they want to talk to? They want to talk to somebody that's been through that same kind of trouble and has come out victorious 
on the other end. So we ask the question, Lord, who is suffering worse than I am in their loneliness? Because one of the best remedies for this wrong thinking is find somebody who's less fortunate than you and go to work helping them and get your mind off your troubles. How can I share with them the comfort of Christ? How can I pray for them? Philippians 4, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am, my lonely circumstances. Heavenly Father, help me to learn contentment. You've said that you would supply all my need according to your riches and glory through Christ Jesus. In Ephesians, giving thanks always for all things, even my loneliness, unto God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. It says that in a number of places. Lord, you didn't say I had to feel thankful, but I needed to give thanks. That means I can be thankful. I choose now to be thankful, and I purpose to act thankfully. Help me to act my way into feeling and by thinking and doing the right thing. And then just to kind of sum it up here, 1 Corinthians 4.16. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. What does that mean? I'm being renewed in my mind day by day as I study the Word of God. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what, it's, not on what is seen, my circumstances, my loneliness, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Now, I know you've heard someone say, yeah, I've heard all that, I've tried that, but it didn't work for me. Well, you're exactly right. I would agree with you. It doesn't work for you or for anybody. If you're thinking about a formula where you just plug in some factors, it doesn't work. It's God who works, and He works by the power of His Holy Spirit, and God always works according to His ways. And that's the reason to begin with, I've got to surrender my will to God. And I've got to say, God, I'm in these circumstances. You know I'm here. You must have a purpose for me in this situation, this predicament that I'm in. What would be your purpose for me? Well, there's another reason. You can't just plug in ideas and activities in a recipe and stir it all up, but there is another reason than that. Many people are looking for an experience, not a lifestyle. They just want a feel-good event instead of a way of life, especially ones that, that would include warfare. Who wants to choose warfare? Well, if you're a Christian, you're in the war, whether you realize it or not. And some people are thinking, hey, I'll make a deal with the devil. I won't bother you if you won't bother me. Well, you might make a deal, but he's a liar, and he's lied from the beginning. And you find out too late that he's still lying. Some people moan and groan about how bad things are, but they're not willing to go to work to do anything about it. Now, let me, in closing here, give you some resources. Here is a good one, God's Promises. Just promises out of the Bible, categorized. I use this little book all the time. Just open it up. Hey, what to do? Look at this. What to do when you feel lonely? Well, you just start cashing the checks here, claiming the promises. But you don't have to pay a professional counselor uh, several thousand dollars. Now, there may be a time when you need some help like that. But look at this. Quick scripture reference for counseling. You can counsel yourself. And in here, you've got the 
different friendships, uh, forgiveness of sins, friendships, that would be a good one, relationships. See what the Scriptures are and start praying through those Scriptures. Get your mind filled with those things. Hey, here's an interesting little book by Jay Adams. It's the New Testament, but it's the Christian Counselor's New Testament. And he's got everything in here marked for you already. Suffering, the Spirit, friendship, fruit of love, hatred. And in the back here, you just look up the categories. If you're struggling with lust or whatever you may be struggling with, you look it up, you go to the verses, you start replacing those wrong thoughts with the right thoughts. You make it a lifestyle. You make it a habit. If your church is not helping you do that, you go to the pastor and say, hey, we need some help with the Word of God. We want to understand what God is saying. So that's just kind of in a nutshell. They're the sources of help. And let me leave you with this question. Have you surrendered everything to Christ? Are you on the right side of the river where you can get to church or wherever God's people are meeting and get that information that you need with which to win the battle? Let's pray. Lord, you said that you've given us everything we need in the Bible, and you've said you would supply all of our need according to your riches and glory through Christ Jesus. Lord, I know that um, as much as I need these thoughts, that there would be others here this morning who need to replace some old thoughts with some better thoughts. And we know we have to be in right relationship with you before we can accomplish that. So I pray if there's anyone here who hasn't really surrendered his or her will to you, that this would be the time. And I pray as we have fellowship together, as we listen to the message and the service, I pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts and we would be able to confess some of those wrong things that we've been thinking throw them out, be renewed in the spirit of our minds, and be created in newness of life, in righteousness and holiness to be like Christ, we pray in his holy name. Amen.